0: Welcome, everyone, to the Inspired Jewish Woman podcast, a place to come together to meet other passionate Jewish women from around the globe. We here value unity, and we come together from different backgrounds, places, and stages in life. We focus on what unites us, being a Jewish woman. We believe that every woman has a beautiful and unique light to shine to our community and to the world. In these podcast interviews, We find the light in others, and we learn from everyone. These are the topics that matter most to you and empower you to be the inspired Jewish woman that you want to be. Enjoy the podcast. Hi, Yael, and welcome (laughs) our viewers. Thank you for joining us for another installment of Inspired Jewish Women. I'm so excited for today. You know, Yael, I've been interviewing women from all around the world. I've I've brought in ladies from Israel and Canada and all over the US and you're my first one from Swaziland. I'm the only option of
1: Jewish person in Swaziland at the moment so not that you could not find any other Jewish woman in all of Swaziland today. That, and none other than
0: my own cousin. This is so so <laughs> special. And so, Yael Uzan Titar. we're excited to get to know you today. And I'm just going to give a little bit of background and how we're related. Because I actually called my parents this morning and I said, guys, I'm going to be interviewing Yael for my podcast. They were so excited, by the way. They're so proud. How are we related? I'm not so good with all the details, but it's so amazing to hear the story. I mean, do you know how we're related?
1: Yes, very well.
0: Your grandmother and my grandfather were the siblings that fled and survived the holocaust three yeah, of their yeah, siblings yeah. did not survive mm-hmm. one of them the oldest one rachalea was married with five children in the town of radzin and mm-hmm. when i think it was my grandfather Lipa and his brother mechel they were working in warsaw And already the Nazis were coming into Warsaw, so they came back to Radzin to check on the family. There's a family of eight children and parents. And the story goes that my grandfather saw that they had purchased tickets, which was very expensive. They didn't have a lot of money. And the tickets, I think they were going west. They were heading towards where the German army Ah, was. Mm -hmm. And my grandfather said, you can't go there. He knew he had come from Warsaw, where the Nazis were already there and he ripped up the tickets and you can imagine this was their tickets of freedom they thought but he begged them to come with him east towards the russian Mm -hmm. army towards the border and they crossed through the river and he took whoever would come with him and it was the five of them that survived right not everyone wanted to come right rachalea she said i'm too old i can't go the parents i can't go and Mm -hmm. unfortunately whoever didn't go perished
1: Exactly, and it's quite amazing that they managed to survive five of them with the in-laws and the kids, and that's why we have such a big family today. I know, I
0: mean, my father just told me from those five survivors, he said there's Mm -hmm. hundreds of
1: descendants from U.S. and Canada and Israel and Africa. (laughs) So what happened is that when they escaped from Siberia, so they worked in Siberia in the camps, and then... Once the Russia gave them freedom, they looked right and left and says, okay, well, let's go east. And they went to Uzbekistan and they settled in a town in Uzbekistan and the train with the sold Sol, which rescued kids from all over Europe came past. And they took our three uncles, which is my uncle Itzik, his cousin Mordechai and another cousin Yuda, and put them on the train because they didn't know what's going to be tomorrow. So rather, let's get these kids out. And they went into with the train that further later on called the Teheran, Tehran, the kids of Tehran, because they went all the way east to Tehran, and then they smuggled them into Israel, where they met a relative in the kibbutz. So when the war finished and all the five families went back to Ulm to Germany, my grandmother and her sister Menucha had no choice but to go to Israel. So they actually got uh, fake certificates, fake visas. So, and they migrate to Israel as legal migrants, but under false names, and they went to Israel to reunite with their kids, where your grandfather, Mehu, and Shprinze, the sister, could not get certificates to go to Israel, and Dora, Mehu's wife, knew people in Canada, and they just, you know, in Canada opened the door, so that's why most of you went that direction. And I love family, and family is so important,
0: but I do feel that that growing up in different parts of the world, I mean, we hardly knew each other. Like, we, we didn't know each other. Right. You know, come to Israel, our, we must have been like, the rich Canadians
1: are coming to Israel. Like, you would come to Israel. <laughs> oh my word. Wow. wow, they're coming. The whole family would dress up. All of us would go, cousins and everybody to the airport. Everybody waited with flowers they would come in and my grandmothers would cook the chunt. It was just, it was an event of not in the seventies and eighties when they were coming. Like you couldn't do anything, they coming, we like.
0: Wow, yeah. wow, it's so, it's so special, but there is such a strong connection in the family. I mean, we've been through so much, you know, like we've, we've yeah. survived and thank God it's amazing. And now to reconnect with you after a long time, I think the last time I've seen you was probably at your sister Racheli's wedding. I think so. I think so. I was I was ready yeah. to uh, explode. I was like in my ninth month of pregnancy, yeah.
1: <laughs> but I knew nothing about you. I learned more about you once I joined Facebook and found you there. Yeah, and it's, the so different nice. different it's so nice. It's so nice to connect
0: with you from across the world. Technology is so amazing that we could be in yeah. our little corners but be be connected in beautiful ways. So thank you exactly. for coming on today, my cousin Yael from Swaziland. <laughs> And there's yeah. so much that I want you to share because you are an inspiration. I mean, literally, I, I was writing notes and notes. When I got off the phone with you, I called my mother to say, you know who Yael is. She is amazing she is changing the world we say like olam chesed yibaneh you should build a world of loving kindness that's Mm -hmm. your whole life i mean listen we're all doing it this is what i do in my work i'm empowering jewish women you're doing it in your work not with jewish women but you are changing the world you're doing tikkun olam and it's very powerful
1: so tell us a little bit about your work and i have a few questions for you so let's start from the end Currently, I work with teens after high school in their first career steps, but those teens are coming from underprivileged background, and unfortunately, they did not manage to get the right certificate, the right marks in their IGCC, their last form five certificate, and they can't apply to government scholarship, but they're coming from um, very poor families, um some don't really have families they have extended families no direct families no mom no dad and somebody needs to just pick up and help them to do that step to become adults so i find myself on one hand helping them to start their career but on the other hand i'm also mentoring them in that change that process between being a child to becoming an adult and independent and my aim is for them to be First of all, self-reliant and self-sufficient. Stop being dependent on donor like us and be able to sustain yourself, be able to support your family and hopefully by default, eventually you'll support your community. The ripple effect is growing in that direction. Also, I live in Mbaban, which is the capital of what we call today Eswatini. It was Swaziland for 50 years and in the last two years we are Eswatini. It's a little kingdom, very small kingdom, absolute monarchy. We're sitting at the east side of South Africa. So if you look at the map, at the bottom of the map, there is South Africa with three little circles. The east one between Mozambique and South Africa is Eswatini, Very small country, one million hundred thousand people. Most of them Swazis. We came here, my husband Shahar and myself, in 1999 for a water project for three months. And after three months, we got a bit of extension and extension. And after two years, we decided, okay, it's quite nice here. It's a beautiful place. It's, first of all, it's beautiful nature. And the Swazi people are awesome, kind, humorous people, very welcoming. They haven't been under apartheid. They've never been under a white a dominant a governing. They were always, there was the chief, then we the, called the king, and they had their own regime 360 kilometers from Johannesburg.
0: Do you go to Johannesburg to like stock up? You know what
1: happened? Last week, I had to make my own Shkedei Marak, if people here know Shkedei Marak from Israel. Because of Corona, we can't get posts. There's no packages coming from home. Can't drive to Joburg to big supermarket that has a lot of kosher food and stuff, so can't do that even. And my kid says, we're not eating chicken soup. We don't care how cold it is. And then I had to fork out Shkedei Marak. They're not coming yellow when you do them at home. (laughs) They
0: kind of brown. Your kids yes. are so Israeli that they won't eat their chicken soup without shkideh marak?
1: It's a problem, yeah. They wow. refuse. Okay. You're doing and something just, good. I think it's a good <laughs> thing. They're connecting to their roots. <laughs> yeah, I know. Yeah. It's, uh, by the way, chicken soup always reminds me of your grandmother because in 2011 I was in Montreal and I met her on a Friday night and she made this clear chicken soup. I always tell that story. Mm. It's so clear. And she explained to me how she takes the deal and she freezes it between white paper towels so it stays straight and it's not broken. So when she puts it in the soup, it doesn't break in the soup. I was just—I uh, had a whole lecture of how to do a clear Amazing. chicken. Soup. My babi gata was yeah.
0: something yeah. else. Yeah. Her yeah. chicken soup was also something else. It was yeah. an art <laughs> to watch her make her chicken soup. No one could touch it. No one could help. I got this. I got this.
1: So we do depend on South Africa a lot, like. If you want to go to the gynecologist, or some people go to the dentist, or just shopping, or maybe service your car if there's no dealer in Swaziland. You don't have adequate
0: doctors and services where you live?
1: We do, but think about like a little town in a prairie, something compared to coming to New York. There are good doctors here, but yeah yeah we need serious you need to go
0: out yeah so yeah i when we were talking on the phone last time a few weeks ago i asked you so wow how did you make the decision to move to swaziland you have siblings you have Mm -hmm. your parents you have everything your whole life in israel you went to the army you have your friends everything and you said well we never actually made the decision (laughs) you know we went for three months and then another two years and then it turned into
1: five years and you know it's amazing. How many years have you been there so far? So we left Israel in 97. We got married and left. Wow. And we've been here in, since 1990, so 21 years in Swaziland. Wow. And you know what? I'm from that generation in Israel that grew up with the thing that Yurdim, people who do the opposite of Aliyah, yeah. are like outcasted. Yeah. And we're going to die for our country. And I was in the scouts and I was, in, you know, and I went to the army. And there's a book by Dvora Omer that I can't remember the name, but we all read it in our about this kid that his parents took him to the state, and he did everything he could to come back. Very ideology, but then you know we just traveled and we just got stuck here, and it was just beautiful and nice. So I said, let's stay longer. And okay, you know we were together since '89, so we've been together for quite more than ten years. And it's like okay, so maybe we should have try and have a baby and another baby. And so I've got three boys. Or is nineteen? Tali's is 16 and your time is 11 and I think after Tali was born we went to Israel with him as a baby and when we came back it felt like I'm coming home when we came back here even until then which would have been 2004 like five years in Swaziland eight years away that I didn't feel like I've left yet and it was only then when I felt that home was here in Swaziland did your family
0: ever give you a hard time you know such a strong family at the core and we've been through so much Mm -hmm. I mean I remember when my parents moved from Montreal where the whole family was they moved to Calgary Alberta it was a big deal I mean they were leaving their family they were on a you know adventure they wanted the Rocky Mountains which we Mm -hmm. get as people that have also left home I've left home when I was 18 I never came back right Mm -hmm. And, and you left just after the army so we understand, yeah. it, but sometimes the older generation doesn't understand. What
1: do you mean you're leaving? How could you leave? Did they give you a hard time? So I must say my parents were always known. they were supportive. They didn't say they like it, but there was no like demand for us to come back. And mm. um, they felt very good. They saw that the business was going well, and they saw the life we were running here. You know, the the life, the standard here when you're in Africa and you make money. Like, let's not be um, naive, you know. You do have big houses here and there's a health care and there's two cars and one car for traveling and one car for me and one car for my husband. And, and we do have good schools here. We do we have excellent schools. here. Not many, few, very few, like one or two. So in a way, they saw so we are happy here and they loved coming here. And so it was never like, come back, we need you or we don't leave the family. They were very, both families were very supportive wow yeah. okay well tell us a little bit more
0: because i wrote in some of my notes the work that you were doing i mean with hundreds of women the project mm-hmm. manager for 700 women supporting health <laughs> healthcare.
1: yeah so what happened when i arrived to swaziland i did the b.a on business and media in israel and i came straight after the degree didn't do well in journalism in Hebrew, but somehow my husband's boss says, Well, expect wife needs to work. So he went to the newspaper and said, Well, I've got this journalist, a husband doing farming. Don't you want someone to do a farming section? I barely knew how to speak English, never mind write in English, but I took the challenge and I wrote every week like two pages in the paper on farming. And when we decided to stay longer I went back to the newspaper and says, okay, so do you have anything else? And he was looking for an assistant, which is exactly what I actually studied to to run, to be a a business manager of a media house. So it fits me like a glove, and I started for five years, which were very inspiring. I learned a lot of working habits. I made a lot of contacts that I still use today in the media world, but it, it was very hectic because you have to produce a newspaper every day. There's a deadline every day. Things need to work every day. And after two kids, I took a break. And during the break, I sat at home and I watched Housewives TV and this was build a house here and build your house there. And we were building our house at the time as well. And I saw this position project manager between the architect and the builder to the customer. I said, I'll be a project manager. And I applied for a diploma, in advanced diploma in project management, thinking I'm going to build and do real estate. When I finished, two friends of mine were running an amazing, amazing business that's called Gone Rural. And I really encourage people to look at Gone Rural Eswatini. It's a company that works with 770 by now, that weaving beautiful household products from grass that they pick in the mountains. And it's a fair trade company where the women actually get paid 50% of the retail price. They are producing the material, Is the grass grows, cows don't eat it, animals don't eat the grass. It just burns every summer, so they cut the grass, they don't uproot it. There's always grass, there's always very sustainable. And the nice thing is that they're working from home. And here it's very important because the youngsters will go to town and work and make money. But at home, which is in the mountains, theirs lives grandmother with the grandchildren and the little kids of the family, and they keep the family homestead. And those women have no means of working. There's nothing happening in the rural areas in Swaziland. And by gone Road providing them with the orders, they can sit at home and make the products, and then they meet the Grown Road people at the area, at the communities, and it's just a walking distance. They don't have to take a bus. And they sell this product and they get 50% of the retail and they walk back home. There's no transport and it fits. It fits the family. It raised the kids, paid school fees because school was not free until 2007. And at that time in 2008, when I finished studying, the company did a survey and realized that although they're providing income generating to the women, there's a lot of stuff that women are dealing with. And back then, HIV starts to rise high in Swaziland. It started around the late 1990s, beginning of 2000. 2005, 6. a lot of people died here. Actually, Swaziland for many years, I think until today, holds the highest prevalence of HIV for the population in the world. And the women that before maybe had one kid at home and maybe a few grandchildren now started to have more orphans. So the kids died, their kids, the grandchildren come to her. And suddenly she had more than seven, six, I don't know how many people to feed. The money she was making from the grass mats was not enough. Company cannot fundraise. So they decided to open an NGO to support the women in other ways besides income generating. And that NGO was running for a year. And then they offered me, when I finished my diploma, they offered me to take it. So then my dream of being a project manager of real estate, I suddenly found myself driving around the communities, meeting women in rural Swaziland, awesome women, very powerful women, um, and helping them with health, with education. They wanted only water and education for the kids, because as I said, school was not free, they had to pay for more kids than before they had to. And they thought water would be great because back then they were drinking from rivers. It's starting now, but back then there was no proper infrastructure for drinking water in rural areas. So we started with finding donors for school fees for water projects. Were people getting sick from the water? I mean, water is life. It's interesting question, you know, because were they, yes, yes, they were, but it wasn't like a cholera outbreaks every once in a while. It was just... When you grew up drinking only this river water, your body will adjust. But why should you drink water where your cows are grazing and, and people walking through and it's floods water and stuff like that? So it's more of a human rights to have a proper drinking water rather than a and and it's like you know, and then the river is very far away and they need to wake up in the morning and go a few kilometers, fetch the water, come back. So for example, one project we had was somebody invented jerry cans like a big bowl with a spear in the middle that you could put a rope so the kids can roll it back home instead of carrying it on their heads or in a wheelbarrow. But the main thing was to try and find water in a community and have a hand pump and they can get the water very close and it's clean water. That was the idea. Later on we started talking slowly slowly introducing the idea of HIV and AIDS and we got an amazing project of outreach clinic that were driving like literally a van with a nurse that was driving into the community to do sexual reproductive health, test for HIV, explain what's going on, help the women try to prevent teen pregnancies, which is a big thing in Swaziland. And that was a, good, a big drive for HIV infections as well. And we moved also to women empowerment. Swaziland got their constitution in 2007. The women had no idea what it's about. Women in Swaziland traditionally do not have many rights, ownership rights. They're very strong in their homestead, but the homestead does not belong to them. The land does not belong to them. And men could have as many women as they like. Many partners could marry them through church, could marry them for traditional. There's no limits. And suddenly your man leaves you with the kids here, goes to another homestead, doesn't pay for the kids around. So there was a lot of issues. And we did some work with women in low Southern Africa to come and explain the constitution, explain their rights. We did literacy courses. We did business courses we also educated women some women in the community so because of the hiv there's a lot of childhood at homestead but there's no adults no one there so unicef and other organization organized centers where the kids can be fed in the community and those centers were running by just women volunteers women and we took women from our communities that were doing that and trained them on early childhood care and development, so they can give some content to those meetings with the students. So I did that for five years. It was amazing. Wow. You sent me such a beautiful gift. There was someone
0: that was traveling <laughs> from Swaziland to yeah. Reed College and you sent me the hands made with grass and it's so amazing yeah. It's such like mm-hmm. artwork. It's incredible that yeah. they had and made this beautiful table runner and placemats, unbelievable mm-hmm. and so meaningful. Thank you. It, it's on our Shabbat table. Yeah. Beautiful. Thank
1: you. They can still find their products in, I know in Canada it's 10,000 villages. I'm not sure who sells it in the States, but it's there. It's out there, Gone Rural Swaziland. And the NGO is Bomage Rural Project, and it's still running until today. Gone Rural? Yeah.
0: Okay, amazing.
1: Do they sell their products all over the world? Yeah, at some stage they had more than 400 customers all over the world. And right now they're suffering big time because there's no travelers, there's no tourist tiers and there's no buying power in the world and the businesses, not locked down but shut down. And it's quite sad, but this is really nice because one of the projects they've started this year with a organization from the state that's called Days for Girls was to produce washable sanitary pads. So they got some funding to do that project and there was fabric and there was sewing machine and everything. And when Corona started, the director Sasha just said, you know what, we need to give masks to our women. We need to produce, let's sew masks instead of sewing pads. And they started sewing masks and they were beautiful from African fabric and she started selling them. So she made more masks to sell and bring money back into the ladies and to the NGO. And it started as like income generating in the NGO and um, producing masks. There was a huge demand at the beginning. We had to call in a few more companies to help us. They're dealing with fabric, I, handcraft companies. And they created the Swaziland, the Swatini Artisan Collaboration or something like this. And some of them still producing masks. But, but Sasha managed to generate income to the NGO and to the women uh, through the corona by making masks instead of sanitary pads.
0: Wow! Yeah. Wow! So, tell me a little bit about this time during Corona, because I know that things have changed all over the world, and I know it's been very difficult yeah. for the people in your community. Mm-hmm. So, but you were fundraising and and really like you know going door to door. Yeah. You you know giving um, undergarments. You said and t- tell us a little bit more.
1: what's happened is that Corona the the big heat made a big right here in Africa and very quickly South Africa went into lockdown yeah, and exactly. Swaziland just followed suits. We were quite better in a way that South Africa could control the international travelers. So Swaziland don't have many international travelers coming first into Swaziland. They all landed in South Africa. But we locked down so we had like three months to kind of get over the anxiety, get used to social distancing, get used to so kids being home. School opened in beginning uh, end of April I think school's open for the term and it's a long-term for them for my three kids working from home but we're privileged in that the private school went online schooling but majority majority of Swazi kids have been out of school unicef did an amazing job of bringing syllabus into the radio and to the newspaper the swazi education system just cannot cope with online teaching so there's an urge to get the examination years the last year the grade seven the form five to try and get them to keep uh, on track with the examinations but the rest of them if you are grade six or form three you just sit at home i feel like we are very privileged here that when corona hit
0: and You know, we needed to get all of our kids online. Our schools, I mean, the school that, the private school that we sent to, they provided us computers for every single kid. We had what we needed to move forward. On a dime, we pivoted. We we started school a few days later, like a whole new system. How is it in your community where people are underprivileged and might not have technology as easily accessible? I mean, is there internet access in every home? No.
1: So it's expensive. Internet is expensive. It's not cheap. Let's talk about my current students, which are not students at school, but they they study in private institutions. So they would study to do an account and finance, or that's the NGO I'm working with now, in, in close to Sasa. And they might be doing teaching, preschool teaching, some were doing mechanics work, and suddenly they had to leave school so those private schools managed to go online but the online means that they're sending materials as pdf on whatsapp and the students studying at home but that's the story these are adult students you know we give them an allowance anyway every month for transport and rent and all sorts of so i kept on giving them the allowances so they can keep on buying data so they'd be able to be connected but The kids in the communities, and if you don't have that, the schools, the normal school, the primary school and the high schools are not able to support the kids like that. You know, so the majority of the kids in Swaziland have not been in school. If they don't read the newspaper or don't listen to the radio, they didn't get any material in. And the material there, it's mainly aimed to those who need to write an exam this year. Tell us about these Corona kits that you were driving around. When Corona started here, one of my students called and said, I think I have Corona, I think I have Corona. I said, do you have fever? I said, I don't know. And then I realized that it doesn't have a thermometer. And I wrote an email to the company that imports all the pharmaceuticals to Swaziland. And I said, listen, guys, I need to buy about 120 thermometers, some paracetamol, some vitamin C. And I thought if I'll create that little kit, they can have it for an emergency and that company was very kind and they supplied me with uh, 35 kits of paracetamol and vitamin c and they also donated to another project that i was doing they donated vitamins last year so i had a lot of leftover vitamins um, but there was no by the time i remember i figured to do that there was no more thermometers left in the whole country you can't get those simple thermometers you can only get those scanners for 2000 rand like 100 Something. Yeah. So I couldn't do thermometer, but I said, okay, let's start that. And then I bought a lot of masks um, to put in as well. And it's very interesting because in February, I was in a conference in Job and there is an organization called Zabra, which is Z-A South Africa and BRA. They're collecting second-hand bras in Europe and the States and Australia, and they bring, they're bring, smuggling them into South Africa because you're not allowed to bring second-hand clothes to South Africa uh, to give to give to any woman who needs a bra and just can't afford buying it. So I had a bag of bra, a bag of panties, a bag of masks, and then vitamins and my Corona kits, and I traveled around to meet some of my students. I could meet everybody and I gave them those and also gave me hand sanitizers. But you know, what? I did a big survey, where I called everybody to find out and none of my students been exposed and none of my students tested positive. Wow.
0: I have a few questions that are really pressing on my mind. So
1: one, I mean, here you
0: are the only Jewish woman in your country. <laughs> it's not that I'm
1: the only Jewish people. I've got a very good Jewish American friends here. There are a few Jewish women here. Definitely the only Israeli at the moment.
0: And I'm assuming everyone knows that you're Israeli, right? I mean, like Israeli yeah. kind of, We have you have your own like flair and you're, you know, you have your own, you're like the Sabra, you can't, uh, mm-hmm. you can't hide it. <laughs> <laughs> and, and here you are like working with all these non-Jews. I mean, making such a, you know, a Kiddush Hashem, a sanctification of God's name in the world. You know, mm-hmm. you're being a light onto the nations you're you're doing exactly what the mission statement is i'm gonna finish that conversation thinking i'm glowing right hey? no, i mean that's how i see you i do see you glowing uh, and and i just like wow like this is what it is being on the front lines making the world a better place reading your TV, it's like your your goal is to help create a better world where independent and <laughs> empowered people live a happy and healthy life. I mean, what could be what could be better than this? This is it's inspiring to all of us, to all the Thank listeners.
1: You. Yesterday, I, we took our friends who are not Jews and they're atheist British people, but he's 13, and I said to them, "Well, he has to climb. We have one mountain here called Sibebe which is the second highest rock in the world. And I said to them, like my kids, when you're 13, you have to climb. No, it's like a Mitzadah kind of thing. Let's climb Mitzadah for the Bar Mitzvah. So we did it with our boys and we said, no, Neo must climb up. So I even took him to climb up the bed the first time in his life. And it's quite frightening to she rock. And it, um, so yeah, it's not just my kids, but it's other kids as well. Most of our holidays, when we do them, we do them with people who are not Jewish, just mm-hmm. friends. I used to have like big seders, like thirty, forty 40 people for the seder. Mm-hmm. And we do, as a family, we do do all the holidays. We keep all the holidays, especially those with the foods. And I do do, I do like the candles and most of the Shabbats that if we're home, if we're not traveling, I like that separation between the week and the holidays and challah, yeah, we have to bake our own challah. All of us were baking our own challah. My Israeli friends and I, um, because there was no halal. I think the supermarket does know how to make halal, but because there's not much demand, they don't do it all the time. Mm. Um, yeah, so we do. And it's thing that I wouldn't do at home. Like at home, I think my mom did light the candles. When we were kids, she would light the candles. We always had a big Friday meal at home. Also in the kibbutz where my husband you know, grew up, there was a Friday meal. So it was just naturally that we continued here and we not completely go astray. And my other Jewish friends, you know, they join in, they join in when they can. I want to quote you something that I found in
0: preparation for this. I was looking at different quotes and sources. The Talmud states that chesed, loving kindness, is greater than laws, and the charities of life are more than all ceremonies.
1: Oh, my word. <laughs> yeah. I mean, it's
0: uh, the Jewish proverbs teach us do not be wise in words, but wise in deeds. You know, yeah. it's, it's so Definitely. huge. It's so huge. I mean, I feel very connected to you. We we lead different lives, different <laughs> lifestyles, you know? Okay. We were yeah. We were, we, we were raised differently. You know, we were on different mm-hmm. paths, but there's something so, yeah. so bonding between your work and my work and, and our hearts mm-hmm. in the right place just to make the world. Yeah a better place, and to bring the sanctification of, of God's right. name into the world, this kidush mm-hmm. Hashem. So you, you mentioned to me that that sometimes when you're working with your teens and they misbehave, you'll say,
1: I'm Yael, you know, like the biblical Yael. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, when I introduced my name, I said, okay, open the book of Judge, chapter 2, <laughs> and you just see I'm a hero, you know, I can lead you well, but uh, yeah, I can also peg you if you don't listen to me. That's I'll my opening.
0: <laughs> <laughs> so I, I think that's amazing how you could be who you are in your environment mm. and just be the shining light <laughs> wherever you go. Everyone knows you're a Jewish woman. You stand for the Jewish
1: people. And you say it without yeah. even knowing me. It's kind of, <laughs> and, and
0: listen, I think that and a lot of people would,
1: think, yeah. I've been following I'm you.
0: I, I read what you're posting. I see the work that you're doing. It's holy mm. work it's holy work. Yeah. I and mean, There's lots of different types of holy work and there's lots of different paths, but it's, mm. it's interesting. Like our, our grandparents, you and I, they nearly didn't survive. You know, it was a miracle. My other grandparents, most of them are sole survivors. You know, my grandmother, Mm -hmm, Guta, she Mm -hmm. was the oldest of six children. There was no Mm -hmm. one when she and my grandmother searched after the war for any family, any survivor. Mm -hmm. There was no one from a huge, illustrious family. I mean, she had a huge family of close to 100 family members. She, Mm She walked out without anyone. And yet, our grandparents, by miracles and miracles, I mean, literally, yeah. it wasn't by chance that they survived and that we can continue yeah. our work in this world, doing Ikkun making the world a better place, being a light onto the nations, I mean, we're so connected, you yeah. It's not small. You and, and, you know, I do feel, I do
1: feel it's come from that generation because my grandmother, she helped a lot of people around. As you said, people came after the war and find refuge in her, in her home. And she cooked. And she, my mom always said that she used to give, like, take money from my grandfather and give it to people without telling my grandfather, all sorts of things. She was a very, she had a big heart as well. Mm-hmm. And I know Guta had and Dora. They were just different. Yeah. So I think we we're all inspired by this generation. Yeah. Amazing. I mean, yeah, the
0: chesed, the kindness. I mean, my grandfather, right, my zaidi lippa. He was known for going to visit sick people in the hospital. His bikur cholim, mm-hmm. his ability to to visit and to reach out to people that were in need. They they just yeah. that was who they were, and I think it trickled exactly. down to us. Like we, we got the messages. Yes. It's, it's in our DNA that we have yes. this, this fight. We don't just want to, you know, survive as people, but we want to mm-hmm. thrive. We want to change. We want to grow. Mm-hmm. I mean, there's a lot more I want to ask you. Maybe I'll ask you this. In all your years of work, what was the most meaningful thing that, that you feel like at the end of your life you could feel so proud. You could, this is your legacy. You want to mm-hmm. pass it on to your kids. You feel like, I did, I did something small. Maybe it's even yeah. one person. I mean, I know that you've impacted thousands of people through your work.
1: Totally. You know, it's interesting because when I was working with Gone Rural Bomagie, or Bomagie rural Project, as they call it today, I worked with 700 women, and we impacted 10,000 people, but you didn't really see it. And it brought me to the project I'm doing now, which is I'm blessed with a great donor, Solon Foundation that helps me. And I work with selected group of people. I only get 20 people every year. And it gives me the opportunity to work with them one-on-one and get to know them and, and to see the change that I'm creating in their life. And this is so special. They're supposed to pay us back 25%. So we don't say goodbye after the year. What I do now, We give them money to go to do a course of their choice. And then I do, I facilitate a life skill training program that I develop. And here I touch in your goals and your dreams and who I am and what's my values. And then we move to write your CV, job interview uh, and things like this. I also take them hiking up to the top of the mountain because we have to to aim high and reach our goals. Wow. And in between the money they contribute back, I invite other speakers to come and talk to them about other things. Then I can pay for paid workshops with the money the students are paying to the organization. And here we touch a lot on gender-based violence. Here we touch a lot of respect. And here I'm trying to do more of personal development in a sense of what my past was, not necessarily what my future will be. If I grew up in an abused family, if I was raped when I was, young. If I was an abused child or the orphan in the family and nobody looked after me because it wasn't my mom or my dad doesn't mean that the new family I'm going to have is it has to be the same. And if in 20 years time or 15 years time one of my students will come and says yeah you know I have a loving one partner who I've been with in the last 15 years and we have kids and I have money to send them to school. I think then I can die peacefully. And I think this is the work I'm doing now where I, I can actually see that strong support, how it's developed to a new human being. And there's a girl, for example, in my projects, her name is Bawenile, and comes from nothing, from a very small mud hut homestead with one mud hut, falling apart mud hut. She fell pregnant. She, she had to find a job. We paid for her to do a secretarial certificate. She went to town, she got a job as a secretary, paid for her rent. Her mom was looking after her baby now in that falling madhouse. So, Pawanila's aim was she needs to finish, she needs to build a room, probably a three by three concrete blocks room for her mom and her daughter and her child. And in a year and a half, she managed to pay back the 25% she was owing us. She built this home. Towards the end, she came to me with the 400 that she usually paid. And she said, I said, how is the house? And she said, well, I'm missing um, windows and the concrete floor, the screen. And I said, okay, don't pay me the 400 now. Don't pay the organization. Keep it. Get enough money for the windows and stuff. Call me when you've done that. Show me the receipts that you didn't go waste the money and finish this home before winter. And she called me two months later and she says, come with the bucky, Bucky is open vent Because now I've got the concrete. I've got the windows. I need to get it to mom. So here I am. Slept up the mountain, me and my gardener, <laughs> with a load of cement and windows. And Bavanila built a home. And oh. Bavanila, since she's got her own place, and she got another job. Then she got a better job in her community, working for school. She had more money, and she lived in her own house. There is another kid, they, not kid, he's almost 30, Pila. In Swaziland, when you a young woman, and you gave birth from some reason to a man, whether it was by will or not. When you find another relationship, you're not taking that child. It's not belong to that man, to the new man. He, that child needs to stay home with grandmother. And Pila was one of these kids. But now he studied carpentry. He got a nice job in a, good, in a big warehouse, I mean, hardware shop in Swaziland. And they trained him on bigger machines. The man is now supporting his mom that abandoned him with his grandmother when he was young. His siblings from the mom and the other husband pays for the niece school fees at preschool, he was paying for her. He paid for his sister to go to do another course. He bought a land for his mom with the money he's earning. So for me, Pila, by the age of 30 is now the old man that looks after everybody. Just and I can only see, I can already see the impact. So he could have come to work in that hardware shop as anything, as a, shop, as a shelf picker. But because he had a certificate in carpentry, They took him in as a carpenter and they trained him more. So it's just give them that stepping stone, that jump from just being a house helper or a cane, sugar cane cutter to someone with a qualification that can get further in life. So when they come to me and said to me, my wife upset me and I did not beat her. I know that I really won now, big time.
0: There are so many different ways of helping people, but but what I'm learning from you is really education is the most important thing you could give. It's such a gift, like you're changing lives through, you know, you're starting small with, with these teenagers, but you see how their lives change when they have education and they have some of their needs met. And they're able to you know have the confidence to go out into the world and to graduate and to all of this stuff Mm. there are many different levels of charity you could give someone money they can't believe
1: themselves when they see the certificate of graduation they call me excited like they because these kids did not get a proper um high school certificate they didn't manage to get a high school certificate so for them to get a secretarial or social work and community development or hiv testing and counseling diploma for them it's like you know it is a major thing but mm-hmm. i'm not alone i'm just another step on the way so they they come to me from organization that look after them through school fees and they choosing them as they come along so the donors help with school fees and then once they finish form 5 i pick up very few and i work with them so I, again i'm sorry i'm not influencing 10000 kids now but yeah. Um, my 120 at the moment we are 120, and I'm very satisfied.
0: <laughs> it's very, it's amazing, and honestly, even if we change one life, I think that's also amazing, you know. And it yeah, that's, that's, I think that's my motto now.
1: Right. I think I came down from trying to save the whole village and provide water to the whole community to really help that one kid to make it in life, and then okay. I can relax.
0: It's really <laughs> the, highest, the highest form of, of helping someone because you're getting totally. them on their feet so that they can help themselves in a respectful yeah. way. So mm-hmm. tremendous. So yeah, I'll thank you so, so much. I'm just going to end with this beautiful statement that is brought down in the Mishnah, in the book of the Mishnah. It says that the world stands on three pillars. Al-shloshad varim. ha al ha Al It stands on True. the pillars <laughs> of, of Torah, of our Judaism, yeah. of our heritage, of, of mm-hmm. avoda, of service, service of God. Of service and a hard and, service,
1: yeah.
0: Gemilut chasadim is acts of kindness, loving kindness. So I just mm-hmm. want to thank you for holding <laughs> up your pillar. And I hope <laughs> everyone who's listening could maybe feel like a little strengthened by this and inspired to maybe strengthen their pillar because we all have to yeah. work together. We're all holding up mm-hmm. the world. So um, you should be blessed, Yael. And, uh, thank you. You too. I love eh? to your kids and your husband and mm-hmm. your your family in Israel. Really send them my <laughs> best. And I know that. I showed yeah. I'm going to share this with our family in Montreal and my parents. They're going to love it. <laughs> also to our ancestors that are no longer here. I'm imagining them looking down from heaven, looking at us connected in this way and inspired mm. by each other and yeah. having a moment of, of nachat. I'm sure they had something to do with it. They're pulling strings. I'm out. sure. I'm sure. I'm sure.
1: <laughs> they are oh. the, the oh. net beyond the net.
0: Thank you,
1: Thank you very much. Such an honor. I love you. Keep doing your
0: work. Thank you. okay. Bye-bye. Thank you for listening. We value that you are a part of our community. Be sure to check out our other podcast episodes. And to learn more about the work that we do at Inspired Jewish Women, please check us out on Facebook, Instagram, and on our website at ww.inspired Jewish Women. Com. notice that we use the word woman and not woman in plural because jewish women are most powerful when we bond together and we together can create amazing positive changes in the world bye for now hope to see you again soon so we could continue this conversation